Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Climate Challengers. I'm your host, Andrea Bain, and I'm excited for today's topic, Indigenous Perspectives on a Clean Energy Future. Today's show will focus on the ways Indigenous peoples and communities are getting involved in energy projects and the perspectives they bring. To get things started, I want to acknowledge that the lands on which Ontario Power Generation has its generating stations and other assets are located within the traditional and treaty territory of many Indigenous communities. Ontario Power Generation respectfully acknowledges that Indigenous peoples are the original stewards and caretakers of the land and that they continue to maintain this responsibility to ensure its health and integrity for generations to come. OPG recently launched its Reconciliation Action Plan, which will serve as a roadmap to meaningfully advance reconciliation with Ontario's Indigenous communities, businesses, and organizations. This includes proactively engaging to identify opportunities to collaborate and support climate change initiatives and develop new, cleaner energy partnerships. Today on The Climate Challengers, we will speak with two Indigenous leaders to hear their perspectives on Canada's energy future, the role of Indigenous communities in our journey to net zero, and the relationship between the development of cleaner energy projects and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. My first guest is Chief Emily Wheatung of Curve Lake First Nation, which is near Peterborough, Ontario. Chief Wheatung is a lawyer and was elected chief in 2019. Chief Weetung, welcome to the Climate Challengers. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to speak to you. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, really excited to have a chance to speak with you. I'm super excited and I want to dive right in. So first, just tell us a bit about yourself and about the community of Curve Lake. So Curve Lake is located about 30 minutes north of Peterborough and about two hours north of Toronto. We're on a beautiful peninsula, so we've got water on three sides. We have these stunning lakefront views. We've got about 2,000 people that live here and really great community services that we can offer. We're very proud of. We have an infant toddler daycare program. We have a school age daycare program and a preschool daycare program and a school in our community that goes all the way up to grade three. So we're able to keep our little ones at home and give them some extra language and cultural teachings until they're about eight years old. We have a health team that that delivers from sort of pre-birth to end of life services and supports and programming, mental well-being healthy babies. Um, so just the, the whole spectrum, which is, is really a fantastic thing for us to be able to offer in our community. We do have some water issues, which, which make it a little bit difficult, make it really difficult, honestly, from time to time. And then about me personally, I grew up here in Curve Lake, uh, surrounded by family and cousins. I live about a kilometer back, a private road that's all aunts and uncles all the way down. So it was really, really wonderful to, to grow up in such a warm and safe environment. I have, uh, I, I went to school here in the community until I was in grade three, and then I went a little bit further and a little bit further. I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy at Trent University, and I loved being able to, to pursue that higher education close to home so I didn't have to go far away when I, when I didn't want to. Uh, and then I went to Osgoode Hall Law School and, and met my husband there. Um, and we have two little boys now. They're five and seven. And uh, I can't express how much having children changes your perspective on the world. Everything you do, you want to do for them at that point. So these two little boys reshaped my whole world and, and my priorities too, making me want to give back to my community in, in new and creative ways and really starting to 
pay attention to some of those bigger issues like climate change. Absolutely. And Curve Lake sounds like a fantastic place to raise children, especially where your kids have the benefit of having their entire community and their relatives, their aunts, uncles, and grandparents right there. That's a gift in itself, right? So I know that Curve Lake is not too far from OPG's nuclear facilities. Now, coming into your role as chief, what was your perspective, your honest thoughts about nuclear power? Coming in, I didn't know much about nuclear power, but I had this idea that it was was not good. That the the spent fuel and the waste that comes off of it and the potential for major disasters, Fukushima and Chernobyl, those are the the those are my experiences with nuclear prior to this role. So I had a lot to learn, absolutely, and I have learned so much. <laughs> I know. You know, that has been a common conversation we've had on this podcast with people with their preconceived notions about nuclear power and how once they got educated, they're like, oh, it's not like with Homer Simpson. Um, (laughs) It's not like that at all. So that's also been really interesting. And every conversation has kind of popped up. So how would you say that your views have changed now? What are your thoughts now? Having had an opportunity to engage with the energy industry in terms of climate change, I feel like I've learned that that nuclear energy is way better than anybody, than common people know. It's got a smaller carbon footprint than most other energies, including including green energies. And I, I have a big a big problem with the word green energy or clean energy. I think one of the major things that I've learned is that every type of energy has an ecological impact and environmental impact. And we have to be really aware of that. We kind of think of of solar and wind as this like pure clean energy, but we don't think of, you know, where where the minerals come from and the materials come from to build those. And we don't think of the environmental impact that they have when they're when they're operational. And we don't think about what happens when they're no longer functioning and the the equipment has to be retired and then what? And so I'm using the word cleaner energy when I talk about it and finding out that nuclear energy is one of the cleanest types of energies kind of rocked my world. It it shifted my whole perspective. Um, And thinking about the two little boys that I have, that I I want a really great future for them. knowing that that we've got to find an answer to this climate change emergency that's happening uh, really, really shifted my perspective to to consider nuclear in new ways and learn more about it. Well, you mentioned something really important, which is once you have the information, once you get the education about something, it changes your perspective. And clearly nuclear is a cleaner energy, as you mentioned. But even with all that being said, there's still the challenges of getting that support from the Indigenous community. A lot of things, as we know, have happened to the Indigenous community. So there's a lack of trust sometimes. So talk to me about those challenges of getting them to support cleaner energy. So I think there's a couple of things that the energy industry needs to understand about Indigenous people. And first and foremost is that we're constantly thinking about our next seven generations. What does this thing that we're about to do have as an impact on those future generations? And and our goal is to leave Mother Earth to leave the world um, in as good a condition or better than we found it. And nuclear energy is is it has long term impacts into those generations. So addressing those issues is going to be really critical. 
And then the second piece is that when we we think about the impacts of something in today's day, in today's moment, in in our time here on the earth, we think about it not just in terms of of human impacts or people impacts, but we think about the impacts that has on all of our relations. You know, and all of our relations includes the plant species and the animal species and and all of those other things that are living on Mother Earth with us, including you know the soil and the rocks and and all of those pieces. And so I think in terms of engaging Indigenous communities in a conversation about nuclear energy or or energy in general, it's really important to provide information so that we can make an informed decision and have an informed perspective when we have conversations about them. We really saw the effectiveness of having informed conversations and providing information throughout the pandemic in our community. Uh, We didn't push getting vaccines. We didn't tell people they should do one thing or another thing, we asked them to learn about it and make an informed decision. And it was really effective. And we ended up with one of the one of the highest vaccination rates of any Indigenous community in Ontario with that approach, which, which is phenomenal. I mean, we needed it. But I think if we take the same approach to the energy industry, here's all of the facts about, you know, renewable energy, about cleaner energy technologies, about the climate emergency that we're facing right now and the impact that that's going to have on the next seven generations. And then talking about um, that all of these pieces fit together because, because in our cultural beliefs, all of the pieces have to fit together. So nuclear is a part of the solution. It's not the whole solution. Um, and looking at it as a temporary solution as well is going to be important. Nobody thinks that nuclear is sustainable till the end of time and the only energy that we should be pursuing. We have to look at all of those options and we have to continue to innovate because if we use nuclear for too long, we're going to have enough spent waste, spent fuel, that we have to we have to address that as well. So always looking to make sure that we're protecting those next seven generations and that we're doing our best to be in balance with, with nature and Mother Earth are going to be really critical in having that conversation with Indigenous communities. I love the concept of thinking about the next seven generations and thinking about if we all thought that way, we probably wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now, but that's a whole other story. Um, And I know in the very beginning, OPG and the Indigenous community did not have a great relationship. They've uh, since had a reconciliation action plan, which has been great. But how do you think that OPG and other, you know, broader industries can do a better job of engaging the Indigenous community to have a conversation about the pros and the cons of nuclear? I think we have to look at it from a perspective of building relationships. You can't, you don't just sit down and have a detailed, intimate conversation with someone you just met typically. You have to build up to that relationship. So um, any relationship is about sort of the the first exchange of information. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. Just telling each other things. And then from there, you start to, you start to want to do more for somebody you're getting to know, whether that's just considering where, where they're coming from or where they might be going or what they want to accomplish. And you start to, you start to have those in the back of your mind as you make decisions. And then from there, you keep building to this point of, of kind of constantly being back and forth. Here's where we're at. Here's where we're going and, and incorporating those pieces until you get to a point of, um, at a conceptual stage, being able to say, I have an idea. <laughs> Think about this idea with me. What could we do with this idea? Uh, and and, and that, that like first conceptual stage when there's no plans and there's no 
formulated, you know, written down steps to get there. It's just this really conceptual stage. And building that relationship between industry and government and First Nations, Indigenous people, is going to be critical moving forward. And I I mean, I think that's ultimately what we're all hoping for, is getting to that point of back and forth and working together in really effective ways that consider everybody sitting at the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious. So what's your view on the role that the Indigenous communities uh, are going to play as as we as a society work towards net zero? I think that there's a long history of caring for the earth and interacting with the earth in quasi-scientific ways where we have a method of observation and hypothesis and conclusion that Western science would understand, but really is just how we interacted with the earth. And from that point, I think we have a lot of knowledge that we can share about how to make things better, about how things interact with each other, because fundamentally those interactions are significant to our cultural and ceremonial beliefs is those interactions. And so When you impact one part of the environment, it necessarily has consequences on others. So I think contributing that information about how changes impact across different areas of the earth are really something significant we can contribute. Well, speaking of contribution, how important do you think um, having representation of Indigenous employees across, you know, all levels of business of OPG will help in this goal that everybody has? I think that's a big question. (laughs) I don't think there's one easy answer there. But I find that as people interact with Indigenous people and and learn from them and see the cultural differences and, and are open to receiving those, it makes it easier to start those relationships. It makes it easier to have those relationships. It makes it easier to have really hard conversations if you know someone that you can go to and ask questions in a safe way. So I think that's one of the big benefits of having Indigenous representation across any organization from top to bottom is, is including those new perspectives and diverse ways of thinking. Absolutely. And change is hard. It's never, ever easy. Um, so do you think that, well, it isn't, it's the truth. It's, it's not. Especially when you're talking about a community and a community with a, with a history of, then they're very, you know, I, I can see where they're coming from. Where it's like, let's just pause and let's just think about this before we just, you know, accept it because it sounds really good. I, I totally understand that. Um, but saying that, do you think that cleaner and renewable energy projects can be part of Canada's path to reconciliation with the Indigenous peoples? I think Canada's path to reconciliation is is broad and huge and absolutely energy has to be a part of that path, but it can't be the only part. And this is where that interconnectedness of things becomes really important. We can't just have a conversation about energy without bringing in all of those historic pieces of, of residential schools and Indian day schools and the 60s scoop. They inform every moment of our being and they can't be left out of that conversation. So we have to find ways, not just in the energy industry, but in all industries and all interactions to have space for those historic truths that have happened. And so absolutely, I <laughs> think the energy conversation is going to be a part of reconciliation, but it also has to include all of the other parts of reconciliation, even in the in- energy industry. So my final question to you, what does it mean to be a climate challenger? To me, it means 
finding solutions to protect the earth for those seven generations. And ultimately, I think everything for me comes back to that. And and those seven generations had a whole new meaning when I had my own children. And you start to see, you know, their children and their grandchildren and their grandchildren's grandchildren. And, and you have almost this visual, tangible line going forward into the future. I want them to have a healthy life. I want them to have a meaningful and fulfilled life. And in order to do that, we have to find solutions to some of the issues that are facing us right now. And that to me is what it means to be a climate challenger. That is the best answer. This has been the best conversation. Thank you so much, Chief Emily Weetung. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for taking the time. I know that you're a very busy person and this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Before we speak to my next guest, we're going to hear from an OPG climate challenger whose role is all about working within the company and with Indigenous partners to deliver on OPG's Reconciliation Action Plan, which includes a commitment to delivering $1 billion of economic impact for Indigenous communities and businesses over the next 10 years. Hi, my name is Christine John, and I'm a Senior Advisor in Indigenous Relations at Ontario Power Generation, and this is my path to net zero. I have 16 years experience in the nuclear industry, but I've been at OPG for less than a year, and in that short time, we've accomplished so much. For more than a century, OPG and its predecessor companies have produced electricity for the province while operating on the treaty lands and traditional territories of Indigenous peoples. It's a legacy that includes many positives, including the development of hydro assets that, to this day, provide Ontario with low-cost renewable power. The other side of this legacy is that our hydroelectric development over the course of the 20th century had significant negative impacts on many Indigenous communities. It was not until 1992 that OPG's predecessor company, Ontario Hydro, came to realize it had to change the way it does business. Central to this change was the need to build better relationships with Indigenous communities and people. Agreements were reached and apologies were made, and that set the groundwork for the relationship building and partnerships that we've been undertaking since. Most recently, I had the chance to help work on OPG's new Reconciliation Action Plan, or the RAP as we call it. The RAP is an enormous commitment from the leaders of OPG to bring everything we've been doing on Indigenous relations under one umbrella. It's organized around five pillars, leadership, relationships, people, economic empowerment, and environmental stewardship. OPG has demonstrated its commitment to the RAP by creating a dedicated team of senior leaders within the company to oversee our progress and committing to growing the economic impact for Indigenous communities and businesses to $1 billion within 10 years. This is not just a plan. It is not just words. It is real action to create meaningful change. And it will help our country in its work to achieve reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. For me, there are many ways towards reconciliation, but reaching net zero in partnership with Indigenous communities is one that really gets me excited. Achieving something so big and so important together as partners will set us on the right path for future generations. And that's what being a climate challenger is all about. I don't do this for me. I do it for my children and grandchildren and the next seven generations to come. Sean Willey has spent more than 20 years in the resource industry. 
In 2017, he was appointed president and chief executive officer of the Desate Group, which aims to grow sustainable employment and business opportunities for English River First Nation community members. Sean's roots are in the Denisulane and Métis communities, and he's a member of the North Slave Métis Alliance and a true leader within his community and for Indigenous people around the world. Sean, welcome to the Climate Challengers, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Andrea. Very nice to be here today. All right, so let's get straight into it, Sean. All right. I'm hoping that you can share a little bit about your background and the kind of work that you're doing now. Well, I was born uh, way up Northwest Territories in a town called Inuvik. Uh, we didn't even live, live there, actually. We had to fly in because we lived in a smaller community. My mom's a First Nation woman from the Nedinukwe First Nation on the south side of Great Slave Lake. Uh, my dad's from a small town here in Saskatchewan, but he was a, a mining exec. So I, I grew up in a household that was uh, all about Indigenous inclusion from a young age. But, you know, the conversations around our dinner table weren't illegal. Why you have to do this? It weren't a regulatory reason. It wasn't to follow any stipulations such as duty consult or untrip. It was because it was the right thing to do. And it was, uh, it was you know, my dad's sort of viewpoint that this is how you're going to make the country better by uniting and in- ensuring that Indigenous people were at the table for uh, resource development projects. So that's, a, yeah, just a bit of my background. And, you know, I, I worked in Northwest Territories, uh, worked in the in the gold mines, uh, worked at the diamond mines, came back to get my education uh, a little late in life when I was 30. And a, and a company called Chemical Corporation hired me up and got to work 10 years at Chemical Corporation. They're the largest uranium miners in the world. And I led their corporate responsibility team, um, did a lot of global activity working with Indigenous people. Because it's funny that, you know, when you find diamonds and gold on, on Indigenous people's land, they're like, oh, there's a little bit of excitement <laughs> When you find uranium, there's a little bit of apprehension. And so there's a little bit of pre-work that needs to be involved. So big supporter of Indigenous inclusion early on. And while I was working at Chemical, I got to work with the great people of English River First Nation, which is a Dennis Sutherland First Nation. And I had to go and come back and work for our own people. So happily joined on to their entity, uh, which is one of the longer serving First Nation economic development corporations in the country. So let's get into your work a little bit more. So much of your work focuses on the economic development strategies for Indigenous communities and ensuring Indigenous people are seen as full partners, which is very important. And right now, as Canada works towards reconciliation with Indigenous peoples and gets serious about the fight against climate change, what opportunities do you see for Indigenous people to participate in the energy transition to net zero? Oh, I see massive upside. I think the table has been set. And I always thank the previous elders and previous leadership for setting that table and then pushing for the rights and title inclusions that have brought us there. And I think now as, as Indigenous people in, in this country, we have to take that business mindset and put that action in the concept. And, and there's, I think there's onus on us as young leaders coming up to make sure we're at the table adding value. And I think adding value means working with and creating partnerships with Corporate Canada, but also means taking a model that we have at Desnefe and sharing with other First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. And I think there's going to be a time when Indigenous people work better together and work towards bigger and, and stronger projects and taking some of the experiences and knowledge that Desnefe has learned and I've learned personally and sharing that with other groups that want to take that first step on the economic development journey. I think the best way to maximize it, you talk about full value, is by getting involved early, getting involved often, and taking a value proposition approach. And I, too often I see communities demanding, and then, you know, I think at times it's right, you have to demand to get a spot at the table, but that gets you in the door, but it doesn't get you your second, third, and fourth contract. And what I've learned is that we have to take those rights and title 
turn them into a value proposition and recapture that entrepreneurialism that I think was stripped away from many of the communities uh, through policies such as the Indian Act. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Uh, It's important for, of course, as you mentioned, for the Indigenous community to take advantage of this opportunity, but also on the other end for businesses to take Indigenous communities and Indigenous uh, groups very seriously as well. So as an Indigenous person, Sean, do you think that you bring a different perspective to the questions of climate and energy? And if so, what? Yeah, I think think it's a more holistic viewpoint. I think... uh, I think it's been shown that Indigenous communities, especially where I come from in the North, are facing the uh, climate impacts firsthand. And I think we think we have the solution. You know, we've created, I, I remind people that a lot of the positive stories you hear out there from corporate Canada right now about, you know, now it's about ESG principles. It used to be about just Indigenous seclusion. And, and these strong programs a lot of them have in place are because First Nations, Métis, Inuit communities pushed for that inclusion. And they pushed for that inclusion because we want it to be part of the environmental discussions. So if we're part of the environmental discussions up front, and our traditional knowledge and our way of thinking was incorporated when you built a project, maybe it's more sustainable. It is more sustainable. If we're part of the ongoing monitoring of uh, the environment while a project is going on, you're going to have firsthand involvement from our elders and our knowledge keepers. And if we're involved in in the reclamation and decommissioning aspects of it, we know that the disturbance of the land, so if you're you're building a hydro or building a solar farm or even putting in a small nuclear plant, you're going to get the land back to normal as much as possible with Indigenous involvement. So I think it's more of a holistic viewpoint, Andrea. I think if all those things are captured, then we want to be part of the socioeconomic benefits of it. And so that, again, brings that more holistic viewpoint that we're looking for. It's not all about ROI. It's about, as you mentioned earlier, our economic development corporation was set up for, yes, we want to create own source revenue, but we also want to employ people. Because I think the biggest driver we can do is employ more people to break the cycle of dependence and create role models for the future. And I think it's that holistic viewpoint that is why we're a game changer for helping solve the climate change uh, discussion right now. Such good points there. So, Sean, can you explain the role nuclear power plays in supporting Canada's goal in reaching its climate targets? Just to break that down. Well, the context comes from I work for a community where you know one in every ten homes are powered from nuclear substance. That you know the natural uranium comes from their traditional lands, and so the community has long been a supporter of uranium mining because they know it's been going into nuclear power and, and nuclear medicine. But it's never been going into the arms. And so they, they learned about this industry. They wanted to support this industry. So nuclear power offers us this baseload, carbon-free option that you know doesn't provide any carbon out there. And in Canada, we have the world-class mining operations. We have world-class fuel fabrication in southern Ontario. We have world-class nuclear power operators in Ontario, New Brunswick. And I just think if you're a pragmatist, how can you take this option off the table? Yes, we want solar, wind. We're going to want hydro. But you have to look at the suite that's going to get us there. And nuclear has to be part of that conversation. Well, it's so funny. You make all the the great arguments as to why it's a smart thing to do. But in your opinion, what do you think the biggest obstacle to seeing nuclear become a bigger part of Canada's solution to climate change? What do you think is, is really standing in the way of it happening? 
just us. I think the way we uh, take power for granted, as I mentioned earlier, it's the public perception of it and people actually having to do research and, and laying out sort of the, the wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, looking at the pros and cons. And everyone has a different bias towards it. And I think that's why we've sort of taken the case as an Indigenous group to put our hands up and say, we want to work with other Indigenous groups so you understand the full story. Uh, so we put out a, an MOU with uh, two of our fellow uh, Indigenous ECDEVs in Northern Saskatchewan to say, we support this industry. We've worked with it for 40 years, and we love to work with other First Nations, Métis, Indian communities to help have a really foundational approach to it, right? Get, getting elders, female leadership or youth leadership and have an honest conversation without sort of the, the biases of the social media world and uh, lay out the power of production options for all of us. And I think Indigenous people are some of the most pragmatic people in the world. And once those options are laid out uh, with true dialogue, you know, it's an option that needs to be on the table. You know, I, I think the cost discussion always comes up, but I think nuclear is comparable to the, you know, we've subsidized the renewables for the last number of years. If we did the same thing for nuclear, you know, the thing with nuclear is it's so long lasting and you're seeing these big refurbishments right now at Ontario Power Generation that and they're going to last for another 60 years. The biggest thing to us is just the public perception and how do we have honest conversations about it. <laughs> but after going through discussions on vaccines, I don't know if, if nuclear is going to be a easier. <laughs> you know what? I wrote down these two words because you just said it, true dialogue. And I'm like, that's the biggest obstacle. As we know, we're watching what's going on in our communities right now. It's like getting people to understand and breaking down the information and true dialogue is at the heart of it. Um, it's very interesting that you touch on that. But let's talk about um, something else. Access to clean energy generation in remote and uh, northern First Nation reserves remains a, a huge challenge. Many communities still rely on diesel generators for electricity. Wow. Um, what opportunities do you see to change that? And, and what would reliable, clean power mean for an on-reserve community? Oh, I'm really excited about the thought. And that's about self-determination and uh, it's really energy independence. I think that could spur micro-economies within, within communities. I just think, uh, you know, the diesel power, we got to move on from it. We're beholden to it. Like the communities I, I worked in and grew up in, in, in Nunavut, Northwest Territories, always had a big diesel generator there. You had to truck it in or, or barge it in. But I think we need to be um, cognizant that we need time, right? We need time to talk to communities, understand their needs. But it would just be a game changer if communities had their own economic independence. And I think that's what we're all looking for as nations, is this that independence away from the, uh, the crown of providing all the, all the energy. So I think communities have different options out there, whether they be, uh, and I think nuclear needs to play a role, but it's going to take time to make sure that communities understand the options in front of them. Such a valid point. Um, this has been such a great conversation, but I want to ask you my last question for you. What does it mean to be a climate challenger? That's a great question. You know, we're a challenger at Desnethe from an economic development perspective because we want to get into the game, right? And we want to change the current model of economic development for Indigenous people. A climate challenger for us is, I think it's pushing that envelope. That if nuclear, if you really believe in climate change, if you understand that we have to decarbonize the planet, we have to be strong and we have to push nuclear. And what I'm seeing right now is there's lots of people having those honest conversations saying, you know, we've had 10 years of deploying wind and solar. Now people understand, that, okay, they cost a bit more, costs are coming down, but wind and solar don't operate all the time. Their efficiencies aren't as good as, as a nuclear power plant. So I think as a climate challenger, 
what we want to do is that Indigenous people want to play a role in solving the carbon issue. And as an Indigenous group leading the charge by raising their hand and saying, we want to invest in small nuclear reactors. We want to work on small nuclear reactors. We want to work in current nuclear plants. We're pushing the status quo. And if that's the challenger in any definition I've ever read. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is what you, the definition of true dialogue. I want to thank you so much for stopping and taking the time to speak to us. Everybody, this is Sean Willie, the president and chief executive officer of Densite Group. Thanks again for your time, Sean. This has been awesome. Outstanding, Andrea. Nice to talk to you today. I want to thank both of my guests today, Chief Weetung and Sean Willie, for sharing their journeys and bringing their perspectives to this important discussion. This has been The Climate Challengers. I'm Andrea Bain, reminding you that if you like the show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.